right at the beginning. Genesis chapter 3. We've been going through the book of Genesis this summer, and we're drawing to a close as the summer draws to a close. We have a few more messages from these chapters, and trust that you've been blessed and encouraged. As we've seen, study in Genesis, that the truths, the themes that run throughout Scripture are established very early in the Bible. The themes of God's glory and and mankind's place and, and sin and redemption, God's plan to magnify His name on the earth through mankind. These things are established very early. Right, right in Genesis 1-3. to So trust that you've been blessed and encouraged to see this and to see that our God is a God who's consistent. He's in control and He's working out things, His purposes for His glory and for the good of His people. When we're done with this series, we'll be spending some time uh, in the book of Luke. So that's just to give you a little heads up what's next. We're going to be doing... Lost and Found, Stories of Redemption from the Gospel of Luke. And that will take us about Christmas time. We'll start that in early October. But we're still in Genesis and finishing that. And and we've seen these wonderful themes and we've followed the storyline as we've gone. And kind of leading up to this point, we watched that God create all these different realms, the sky and the land and the sea the lights of heaven, and to fill these things, to give them definition, to create the form and then fill them with all sorts of variety of things to His glory. And then His crowning achievement, mankind, He sets over His creation to image His glory, to rule it, to enjoy Him. We learned about how God put the man in the garden, the garden paradise of Eden, this royal garden, probably a walled garden, and with all sorts of plants and and how the man lived there and had everything he needed and was blessed and he made them man and woman together and they enjoyed blissful marriage and fellowship. And not only that, but God Himself walked with them in that garden. So they had perfect fellowship. God's creation, the intention of His creation was to glorify His name and to have mankind rule over it as His sub-rulers in a sense and to enjoy fellowship with one another and fellowship with God. And we saw in our storyline that things took a ch- change. They took, there was a twist in the story. And, and they were put in this garden and there were two trees, a tree of life that would lead to eternal life with God and fellowship with Him and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And there was a probation period in the garden to see what Adam and Eve would do. God commanded them not to eat of the tree to trust Him at His Word. And rather than trust Him at God's Word, they decided to take things into their own hands and decide their own fate. At least they thought that. And when Satan tempted Eve and her husband who was nearby, they ate of the fruit. They disobeyed God. They had everything. They had this perfect creation. They were in the presence of God. And and there was one simple, simple command. One simple explicit command that God gave them and they, they disobeyed it. And so right before our verse picks up, we'll start in verse 14. God has shown up and the man and the woman have recognized that they've sinned and they've recognized their terrible state and God shows up and starts questioning them and He questions the one who's most responsible, the man, and He says, she made me do it. The woman gets questioned and she says, the snake made me do it. And so they're blame shifted and that's where we pick up in verse 14. But let's pray before we read verses 14 to the end of the chapter. Lord, we thank You for Your Word, Your truth. Lord, this story, this real account of what happened. And God, that You want us this morning, thousands of years later, to grasp this story, this account. You want to change our lives through it. We thank You for that. We thank You that Your Word's timeless. 
And I thank You, Lord, that this morning there are people here who You're going to minister to, Lord. You know all their situations. I don't, Lord. And You want to minister to them. And so we ask You to do that. Lord, we look to You. We look to hear Your voice. Lord, we're asking for a miracle because there's nothing in me that merits You doing this. There's nothing in us, Lord. But You are good and merciful and You love to bless Your people. You love to magnify Your name and You love to use weak vessels to do glorious things. And so we come in faith, Lord, asking You to do this. To communicate to us that we'd hear Your voice and, oh God, that, that You would speak. And when we're done in this time, we would just know all the more how glorious You are how good, and that You are our God and we want to follow You all our days. So pour out Your Spirit and do these things in our midst, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Let's read uh, Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 14. Uh, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. After they had blame-shifted, it says in verse 14, The Lord God said to the serpent... Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman... He said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat it and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Genesis 3, 14-24. The title of today's message is Pain and the Sure Promise of God or The Promise of God Amidst Pain. I don't know if uh, many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress. Anyone here ever read Pilgrim's Progress? It's a great book. A good one to read. And, and I don't know if we have it anymore, but we had on a book table a children's version, which I think uh, our kids have gone through. And I love it. I love the children's version because it's got really great pictures. I like books with pictures. And it's a wonderful story. It's actually what's called an allegory, which is a fantasy that, that uses different things in the story to represent reality. And it's this allegory, really, of the Christian life. And this character, Christian, who, who in the beginning doesn't know God and knows he's a sinner and finds eventually at the cross that his burden of sin is uh, put away and, and he's a new creature. But then he goes on to live life and he faces many obstacles in life. And It's a wonderful allegory because the Christian life uh, can be filled with challenges. And there's one challenge in particular that I think relates to the message, the text today. And that's the challenge where a Christian and his friend at the time, hopeful, stray off the path that God wants them on that leads to, to heaven, the celestial city. And they go down this side road and they find themselves in the morning waking up to a giant, giant despair, this hideous 
evil giants. And it turns out that they had wandered into his territory during the night. And so he discovers them, he overpowers them, and takes them to his castle and throws them in the dungeon. And the castle is called Doubting Castle. Again, remember this is an allegory, so this all represents things in the Christian life. And so Christian and hopeful are, are cast into the dungeon of Doubting Palace. Uh, and, and giant despair is there. And he just, uh, he, he keeps them from eating, and I think drinking, and they start to despair, and he goes down and he beats them during the day, and then at one point he takes them outside to the yard, and he shows them all the bones of all those who have gone before Christian and Hopeful, and says, this is where you guys are going to end up too. And the whole point is that, that Christian and Hopeful are in a season, like we can be at times, of despair and doubt, even despair to the point of death. And the story continues. They're, they're at their wit's end and they start to pray. They kind of find enough faith, just a little bit of faith and enough strength, just a little bit of strength to pray together. And in the story, God starts to break through. Let me read what John Bunyan writes at this point. Now a little before it was day, good Christian, as one half amazed, broke out into this passionate speech. What a fool, said he, am I, thus to lie in a stinking dungeon, when I may as well walk at liberty. I have a key in my bosom, a key underneath his shirt, called promise, that will, I am persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. Then said Hopeful, that is good news, good brother. Pluck it out of thy bosom and try. This was written back in the 1600s. Then Christian pulled it out of his bosom and began to try at the dungeon door, whose bolt, as he turned the key, gave back, and the door flew open with ease. And Christian and Hopeful both came out. Then he went to the outward door that leads into the castle yard, and with his key opened that door also. After he went to the iron gate, for that must be opened too, but the lock went desperately hard, yet the key did open it. Then they thrust open the gate to make their escape with speed. But that gate, as it opened, made such a creaking that it waked giant despair, who hastily rising to pursue his prisoners, felt his limbs to fail. For his fits took him, whenever he went out in the sunlight, it'd have fits. His fits took him again, so that he could be by no means go after them. Then they went on and came to the king's highway, and so were safe because they were out of his jurisdiction. The Christian and hopeful find a key. Matter of fact, they had the key all along. He had the key under his shirt the whole time. But he forgot about it. And they're despairing in Doubting Castle. And as they pray, he remembers, I have this key called Promise. And the key unlocks the gate to get out of Doubting Castle. Well, I think our text today is a text that addresses the pain and the reality of the human condition. We have learned from the book of Genesis that mankind, because of Adam and Eve, have fallen into sin. That our foreparents, Adam and Eve, fell into sin and that sin now stains all of us. And because of sin, there's pain. Life can be hard and our own sins can bring pain. And the sins of our society can bring pain. We live amidst pain. We live in some ways, amidst Doubting Castle. But there is a promise of God. The promises of God are throughout Scripture. And that promise is a key that unlocks, unlocks the gates to Doubting Castle. It's a key that allows us to deal with life amidst the pain. So we're going to jump into this text and we're going to look at how, though there is pain, though there is judgment for sin and repercussions for sin, there is the promise of God right from the beginning. The promise of God to bring deliverance and release from sin and its pain. So let's jump into the text and look at that. First, in this section, he, God is addressing the serpent. When He first comes to the situation, He addresses Adam. Again, blame shift to Eve. Blame shift to the serpent. So now God, in reverse order, starts to address each one. And he starts to bring judgment on each one to different degrees. If you examine the, the text, you'll see that he actually he, he doesn't curse Adam and Eve outright. He brings, he brings a judgment. He brings consequence to them for their sin. 
But there's only one person in this group of three that he curses outright. That's the serpent. And we learn that that is Satan himself behind the serpent. And so he withholds his curse from Adam and Eve, but curses the snake outright. He says, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And this isn't just a story to explain why snakes go around on the, on the ground without legs. Um, it's, it's really teaching that God has cursed what was behind the snake, and that is Satan himself. Satan has been cursed. Satan has been judged. There is no redemptive plan for Satan. There is no promise for him. There's a promise in here for Adam and Eve and for humanity, but not for the serpent. And if you examine Scripture and look around, you'll see that. There's no redemption for this fallen angel and his minions. Isaiah 65, and speaking of the promise, the fullness of redemption that God's going to bring to His creation, it says, "...the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food." They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. So God says there's going to be this redemption and symbolized by these animals that normally war against each other being reconciled. But what happens to the serpent? He's still cursed. He's still eating dust. He's, he's, he's abased. He's cast from his high position. So there's no hope. But even as God curses the, sa- the snake, curses Satan, He speaks a promise for Adam and Eve. For the text goes on. After he curses him, he says in verse 15, I will put enmity. There will be conflict and and you'll be enemies between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, Now, I think we need to kind of place ourselves a little bit in this situation. Adam and Eve have blown it entirely. They've disobeyed God. And they're in the presence of God, the Holy One. And at this point, they've disobeyed the command. And God promised there would be death for them. And so at this point in time, God could have just said, and cursed are you, Adam and Eve, and just cast them out of His presence forever. So they're standing there, they're recognizing that they're guilty. I mean, even though they're blame-shifting, there's just no escape from this reality. And yet, God speaks a word of promise right here to them. I think that says something about the character of God. God is holy. God is just. God is merciful. He has chosen to have mercy on mankind. It's just amazing. And we we need to remember, and, and I feel like for myself, I was refreshed in this this morning, earlier before we gathered and in worship, that God has no obligation to do anything else. We have sinned. Adam and Eve sinned. And we, as their descendants, have sinned ourselves. We have knowingly and consciously and in full culpability chosen to disobey God. And we are fully responsible for that. God has no obligation to us to be merciful. He doesn't have to do it. And matter of fact, His goodness and justice dictates that He deal with it. And we need to grasp that. We need to to be and feel, I think, as perhaps Adam and Eve felt at this point, that I stand before God with no excuse. I've disobeyed. I've rebelled against Him. And so when God offers us a promise to lead us out of those consequences, we recognize just how amazing it is that there's promise. And what an amazing God we serve that though He could have just poured out His wrath and got rid of humanity, boom, right like that, instead He said, I'm holding out a promise. And let me explain what the promise is here. The promise is actually in his speech to the snake. He says to the snake, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Between your offspring, or seed is the word as well, and her offspring. So God says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the descendants of this woman. That there's going to be an adversarial relationship between you and all those you influence, Satan and the woman's descendants, and in particular, the people descended from Eve of God, the people of God. And so, throughout history, there has been enmity between the people of God and 
and Satan and, and those who follow him. There's been enmity. There's been strife. There's been a battle. There's been this enmity. And through the history of Israel, the people of God amidst the world and the world's ways, there's been struggles. And throughout history, that's true. But this promise to the snake is ultimately fulfilled in the ultimate person of God, Jesus Christ. It's fulfilled in the people of Israel, but it's ultimately fulfilled in the true Israel, in Jesus. So right here at the very beginning of the Bible, chapter 3 of Genesis, God is already talking about redemption. He's already talking about this One who will come. With Satan, He'll have enmity. And there'll be this struggle. He's already speaking of Jesus at this point. And that's been understood throughout, throughout the history of God's people that this is a promise of God. That He would put enmity. And it ultimately was fulfilled in the fact that this perfect one, this, this ultimate descendant of Eve, the God-man, Jesus Christ, went to the cross. And on the cross, he dealt Satan essentially a death blow. He dealt with Satan's plan to, to get in and to ruin God's plan and ruin mankind. So this promise was ultimately fulfilled on the cross in that the enmity between them resulted in Jesus bruising the head and, and crushing the head of Satan. In Romans 16, it says that the, the God... The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. So, so God has crushed Satan in His Son and continues to work out the implications of that through His people. That's the promise to the Romans. Christ came and bore our sins. See, Satan tempted mankind, led us into sin. We sinned. It wasn't Him. He tempted, led us into sin, and because of that, there's sin and death and misery. That because of that, Satan has affected us and has brought misery on us. And there's this enmity. But Jesus came and bore our sins. He paid for our sins on the cross so that the penalty for sin could be dealt with and paid for so that we could be free and forgiven. And then He's come and He's come by His Spirit to dwell in us and give us new life so the power of sin could be dealt with and the presence of sin could be eradicated. He has effectively, through His life and death and resurrection, stomped on Satan's head and crushed the serpent even as He Himself was killed. It says that He will bruise your head and you shall, you shall bruise His heel. See, it didn't come at no cost. Christ died on the cross. And fulfilling this first promise of the Gospel, Christ died on the cross to pay for our sins. It, it was a, at great cost to us. To Him. Actually, no cost to us. Great cost to Him that He paid for our sins and suffered the wrath of God. The wrath of God for Adam and Eve. The wrath of God for all His people throughout history. He bore that. Paid for the sins. And as we say, His blood speaks a better word. His blood speaks of our forgiveness and our cleansing. So this is a promise right there. Genesis 3, right at the beginning, God is already promising redemption. He's already determined, I'm going to save my people from the effects of Satan. And He promises this actually speaking to the serpent right in the beginning. So amidst the pain, amidst the curses, amidst, amidst the repercussions that Adam and Eve are going to hear, stands this promise stands this key that they can have that God is going to redeem them and deal with Satan. And that's a promise for us. It's not just for them. We have the Word of God because God wants us to carry around in our bosom, in, underneath our shirt, in our heart, that key of the promise that there's a Savior who's come and has dealt with Satan. And though I'm in a life that has pain, and though we feel the repercussions of the fall, though we still sin, Though we get sick, though we die physically eventually, though we have to watch one another go through trials and sickness at times, though we have to agonize at times, though we may be in Doubting Castle and we may be getting crushed by giant despair, there's a key, a promise. My Redeemer lives. I'm forgiven. 
He has dealt with Satan completely. And I belong to Him. And I believe I'm going to stand on that. I've got the key that lets me out. Right in Genesis 3. The promise. Right away. God gives us. It's the sort of God that we have. He's gracious. He's kind. We learn that God does all things for His glory. We learn that God has created all things for His glory. And and I think that begs the question, so He even allowed these things for His glory? Yes, He did. He knew it was coming. He even designed it. And we have to understand, I think, in this promise, something about God and His ways. Sometimes the doctrine of God's sovereignty, the truth that God is in control of all things, will lead us to conclude some false things. Will lead us to conclude that, okay God, I guess you're this distant ruler. And you set everything in place. You wrote this script of, of history and you allowed it to happen and you kind of stood back with your hands folded and said, hey, let's see how this works out. This is going to be cool. And somehow was detached and uncaring. But that's not at all the truth. For God allowed all these things. He designed all these things even. But in order to fulfill these things, in order to fulfill this promise that He made to mankind, He Himself had to enter into intimately His plans and the script and history. And He Himself had to go to the cross as God-man and bear the worst pain and horror. So as we live amidst the pain, and as we're in Doubting Castle, and we are are sometimes tempted to question, God, what are you doing? What's up with this? Why pain? Why suffering? What's going on? We must remember that He Himself entered the pain. He Himself suffered. He Himself underwent the worst worst circumstances anyone could undergo. Because He went to the cross. And He bore your sins and my sins. And not only was it horrible, I believe, just to, just to have our sin on Him, a God who had never known sin, He who knew no sin, God, God is so holy and good. I mean, sin is totally abhorrent to Him. And He who knew no sin became sin for us. So not only the horror of taking our sins and, and their, the fullness of them. I mean, we don't, I don't think we even comprehend the fullness of our sin. We know our sin's bad. We know it's to a degree. But God knows perfectly how terrible our sin is. He knows just how ugly it is. He knows all the dimensions of it. And this God took our sins on Himself. And so He went through the horror of bearing our sins. But that wasn't the end of it. Because not only did He bear our sins, but He went to the cross and says, said to the Father, here I am, the guilty one. Here I am, Paul Buckley. Here I am, Ken Drury. David Ross. Here I am. All, all this sin on me. And then the Father poured out His just and holy wrath for your sin on the Son. And He suffered, he suffered for that sin. The infinite punishment the perfect, holy, white-hot wrath of God. There's no horror greater than that. There's no pain greater than that. So yes, our trials can be significant. They can be hard. They can be difficult. And I would, I would venture to say that in America, our trials are relatively light compared to some others. But they're significant. They're not to be ignored. But they're nothing. They're nothing compared to His suffering for us and what He did for us. So God is not a distant sovereign doing His plan and walking away uncaringly. He is a God who has entered into the extremes of pain in His creation and bore our sins. He's not detached. He's intimately involved. Bearing sin. Suffering pain. So that you and I would not have to suffer that same pain. So that you and I would have a key that we can take out and say yes He's already done it. I'm forgiven. And and instead of being treated as our sins deserve, we are treated as Christ deserved to be treated. we got a key that lets us out of Doubting Castle that allows us to deal with life and pain. There's a promise amidst the pain. God wants us to recognize that. He wants us to experience that. 
to walk in that truth. And I find in my life that if I'm not experiencing that, if I'm not walking in the joy of that key, if I'm not realizing the depth of His love, there's one of three things wrong. Either one, I'm not recognizing how serious my sin is and what a sinner I am and how I don't deserve. For me this morning, God reminded me of this. I don't know about you, but I, I can so quickly gravitate to an entitlement mentality. I've come, become accustomed to God being in my life and experiencing joy on a relatively regular basis. And I can get an entitlement mentality and think that God isn't loving me if, if it's just not incredible, if we're not just getting everything I wanted. And God reminded me this morning that, that number one, I was forgetting. I don't deserve anything. So if we think we deserve something, if we think that, that we owe something to God, we're not going to understand how incredible His mercy and love is. We're not going to value that key a whole lot. So one is that we are forgetting that we and in ourselves ultimately don't deserve anything. Second is, the second possibility is, I don't know enough about how good and great God is. How perfect He is. How holy He is. How good He is. I mean, God is good. He is great. He's perfect in every way. Every dimension of goodness He fills out infinitely in His love and holiness and wisdom and perfection. He's glorious. We can't comprehend Him. He's so great. And so, if I'm not recognizing His love, it might be because I'm, I've made God small. And so, being reconciled to God isn't all that big of a deal. Because God's not all that big of a deal. So maybe I've made God small and I've not realized just how far from Him I am. How short, how far short of His glory I fall. So it's either one or number two or number three. I don't know the price He paid to bridge the gap between those two realities. To bridge the gap between my sin and His holiness. So perhaps this morning God would want you to better appreciate the key and the promise you have by understanding how you don't deserve it. And understanding how He has no obligation. He's perfect to you. But to recognize just how much He has loved us. To bridge the gap for us. To give His very Son for us. He wants us to stand on that and believe it. So there's a promise amidst the pain, even as He addresses the serpent. Let's continue and look as He addresses Eve. He begins to speak to Eve and speaks of her the repercussions for her. After speaking that promise, I think Adam and Eve would have heard, he says to Eve, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So for Eve, she was called to be Adam's helper, to walk with Adam, and together they would rule God's creation. That, that, that call is still in place, by the way. She was called to that, and as his helper, she was uh, given the wonderful privilege of bringing forth children for the Lord and to enjoy. What a blessing, what a unique honor to be a woman, to be able to bring forth children. I cannot identify with it. I can only stand from a distance and marvel. The whole idea of, of a child being formed and growing inside and, and growing to maturity and then producing that child and nurturing that child, that is a holy honor from God. So this key role, this key role for, for women, not the only role, but a key role for women, uh, was corrupted by sin. And instead of it being pure joy, and it's a lot of joy, instead of it being pure joy, there's the reminder of the fallen condition at that moment of birth, moment of bringing forth, I should say, the moments of bringing forth a child. And, and guys, we just can't relate to this reality, and so... Yeah, thank you, God. As a matter of fact, I remember when, I, when Daniel was born. My wife's not here. She still gives me a hard time about this. When Daniel was born, I had a headache. And, and she's going through labor. Daniel was our longest labor, our first. That's usually the case. I think six hours, which is actually pretty good for your first. Um, six hours of labor, and I had a headache. And Peg kind of, I think, wanted me just to kind of keep my headache as a way to empathize or sympathize with her and... I, I couldn't stand it, actually, and I called my mom. And my, my mommy came and brought me Tylenol, and so I didn't have to have a headache. She still kids me about that. 
So we don't, we don't have, we can't identify as guys. We should be grateful. But God chose to bring this reminder of our fallen condition at a moment which should be, it is, in many ways, pure joy. Creation has fallen. And even in this moment of joy and in the privilege of bringing forth children, there's sin and brokenness in our world as a result. So he brings this consequence to her. And then he says next, not only is her key role as bringing forth children uh, affected, corrupted by the fall, but, but also her relationship with her husband. It says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. That word desire, I don't think it means affection or romantic feelings for your husband and he shall rule over you. Some would see it that way. If we jump to chapter 4, we'll see a, more, a clearer explanation of that for chapter 7, I mean chapter 4, verse 7. God tells Cain, who's Adam and Eve's first child, that sin is couching at the door. Cain has got himself into sin and jealousy over his brother, his younger brother. And God says, it's one of, God is so gracious. I mean, the fact that he warns Cain, he speaks to Cain and warns him. And he says, sin's crouching at your door and it desires to have you. It's the same word in, in the Hebrew. Desires to have you. Sin doesn't have affectionate romantic feelings towards Cain. It wants to rule him. And so, in chapter 3, when it says your marriage, when it says your desire shall be for your husband, the marriage relationship itself is affected by the fall. And instead of perfect bliss and, and, and intimate cooperation and, and submission and love and leadership going on, there's now the battle of the sexes going on. And the woman's desire is to have dominion over the man and, and to tell him he doesn't know what he's doing. Let me rule. And then it says the husband in turn dominates her. So the sin of Adam and Eve brought with it chauvinism, feminism, broken families, gender confusion, all these things to bear. And instead of this key relationship being a blessing, and it is a blessing, but now it's broken. And instead of blissful cooperation and right roles, there's, there's fighting and conflict. Now there's a Redeemer, we mustn't forget that, but there's repercussions for sin. So this, so Eve, her particular consequences are felt in these ways. These are the results. Let's move on to Adam. Adam, similarly, his key role, one of his key roles is corrupted. Adam was placed in the garden to fellowship with God and to, what? Work the garden. He was called to work. Now, we're going to spend time, actually, the last two messages in the series will be on man and manhood and womanhood and roles from Genesis and so forth, and on work. Our last message will be on work. Right In Genesis 1-3, to these key roles are established. So for Adam, he was called to work. He was called to work with the Lord. And if you read in, earlier in Genesis, God caused things to spring up from the ground. All these types of trees, all this variety of stuff for him to take care of. Gardening was easy for Adam. It was a pleasure. It just Stuff just sprung up. Now, we don't know exactly what happened and how it worked, but maybe he just like, would throw a seed and like the next day, like something from the book from the Chronicles of Narnia, you know, springs forth and, and maybe that was what it was like. But now, because of sin, instead of that enjoyment of farming and tending the garden for God's glory, God curses, or actually doesn't, well, He does. He curses the role. He doesn't curse Adam. curses His role and His environment. And now, instead of things just springing forth, what springs forth? Thorns and thistles spring forth. And for anyone who's garden, we know that's the reality. What grows better than the stuff we're trying to grow? Weeds. Weeds always grow way better. And so that's Adam's experience. And, in, and not only are there thorns and thistles, but he is to sweat and to work hard to make a living. And instead of work being a blessing and a pure joy, which it should be, it's hard. And now there's days we come home from work and I'm exhausted. Today has been so difficult. And we experience those repercussions. We are getting a little into the message on work, but we're going to, I believe, continue to work in the new heaven and the new earth. But there'll be no more sin and there'll be no more sweat and toil. It will be pure joy as God redeems. Yes, amen. I am looking forward to that. I'm sure we all are. God's going to redeem even work. So these are the repercussions for them, for their sin. 
But even as they are told of the pain that comes from their sin, once again, God gives promise right here in the beginning. So after dealing with the serpent, dealing with Eve, and dealing with Adam, verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And Eve means life or living. And so God, so the man calls her Eve. So there's promise of life. There's promise of a continuation of mankind. God does not wipe out the human race at this point. He speaks and Adam believes his promise that there's going to be people who follow after Adam and Eve. There's going to be more people who live. And if you trace the Bible, you'll see that God not only has caused mankind to prosper and grow, but He has pulled out of the world throughout time His chosen people. He's called them out of where they would go automatically in sin and called them to Himself. So there's a line of God's remnant, chosen remnant, He pulls out. And may that remnant grow and grow to His glory. So Seth's line, Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Israel, and ultimately His Son, and all those who are in His Son, He pulls out. So there's the promise of life. And not just pain, but life. God redeeming mankind. So there's Eve, the mother of all the living. It goes on too. Look what God does next. Verse 21. Remember what happened after they realized that they, were, that they had sinned? They realized they were naked? They realized their, their, their weakness, their bankruptcy before God? Apart from Him, they realize their sin and their shame. And so they realize they're naked. And what do they do? What do they... Do you remember what they did? They made... Yeah, they made loincloths out of fig leaves. Not fun stuff to be wearing, I don't think. And so they got loincloths there. They're trying to cover themselves. And what does God do for them at this point? He makes garments of skin. Here's a gracious Father, a gracious God, making provision for them. Now, some would see in those garments of skin and in the sacrifice of the animals that, that was made in order to make the skins something foreshadowing the ultimate sacrifice of the Lamb of God, Jesus, to make provision. And that may be what's there and understood. We must remember that this book was written for the people of God in the desert as, and as they, the, the Israelites came from Egypt into the Promised Land. And so they'd be reading this and they may have made that connection right away because they were watching animal sacrifices go on in the tabernacle. So that may be what it is, but, but whether or not that's exactly what is meant, the fact is God makes provision for them. He covers them in their sin and shame. God's disposition is so gracious to cover us, to provide for us, to provide covering, and ultimately that is fulfilled in Christ. His blood covers us. We are, we are clothed in His righteousness now. If you're a believer and you've turned from your sin and put your, play, your faith in Christ, the Bible says you're clothed in His righteousness. You, are, you have no reason to be ashamed anymore because you're cleansed from your sin. You're forgiven. And when He looks at you, He sees His Son. So right in the beginning, the promises of God, that key given to humanity, right in the beginning, in the covering, and then finally, in this section, He says... Behold, the man has become like one of us in, in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, God cast him from the garden. So mankind is in a state of sin. And it would not be good that he take of the tree of life and continue to live in this state forever. God has something better in His mercy for His people. Redemption. He doesn't want that to happen. So He casts them out of the garden. And there's some things to note here. Now remember... This, is, this account, I mean, it would have been understood by the people of God before, I believe, before Moses, but, but the ones who first had it in written form as the Word of God were the people Israel. And they were living, camping in the, in the wilderness on their way to the Promised Land, and the tabernacle was right in their midst. This, this, this thing, this place of worship of God, a tent, surrounded by a courtyard and then an inner tent, and it was a place they were told what to do when they worshipped God. This was a place of encountering God. And you can read about that further in the first five books. And so God cast them from the garden and just thinking as an Israelite, listen what it says. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the Tree of Life. So he cast them out of the garden. Remember what the garden is? It's the place 
from which man ruled and fellowship with God. It was a place where he walked with God. It was a place of God's presence, wasn't it? And it says that he cast them out of the garden, and at the gate that faced east, he puts a cherub. What's a cherubim? An angel. And if you were, again, going back, you're, you're in the desert, one of the Israelites, where had you seen a cherubim before? Where did you know about a cherubim? Right. The seat of atonement. There's cherubim there. So in this tabernacle place, that's the other place you've seen a cherubim, over where the presence of God would come in, on the atonement seat. And now you're hearing this story about the garden, and at the gate that faced east, there's a cherubim there. This will make sense when we finish up. So hang in there. The gate, there's one gate to the garden. The garden actually was, it seems it was an enclosed garden, a walled garden. Royal gardens were like that. And it had one gate. In which direction did the gate face? East. Can you think of a special building among Israel that had one entrance and it faced east? The tabernacle and the temple. So you're an Israelite and you're hearing this story and you're realizing, wait a second, they were cast from the garden. They were cast out of the garden. And a cherubim that protects the holy presence of God keeps them from going back in. The gate face east. There's a, something in our midst just like this place. The tabernacle. There's a cherubim there. And it face east. So no longer is God casting us from the garden. He's now tabernacling with us. He's dwelling in us, in our midst now. And so the judgment on Adam and Eve of being cast from the garden and exiled is now being reversed in God making Himself known to the people of Israel and saying now, through the blood of atonement and through these things, you are to come back into the garden. You are to come back into the presence of God. And we know in the New Testament, ultimately Jesus Christ is the perfect temple. And by Him, His blood was shed, shed for our sins. And now we can come back into the presence of God. The Bible teaches there's only two places to be. Only two places for humanity to be. We are either cast from the presence of God or in His presence. We are either exiled from God or we are with God and fellowshiping with Him. That's the only two states for humanity. The people of God throughout history have understood that. That's why later on in the Old Testament... When the people are cast from the land, they recognize this is a terrible state. That's why they're so upset about going to Babylon. Because Israel, the physical, geographical land, was the place of God's presence. And that's where the temple was. That was their Garden of Eden. To be there. So to be exiled was the worst case. Now we know, if you look at John 4, Jesus is the temple and now we worship in spirit and truth. Not geographically, but according to truth. We now have the truth of the Gospel and the Spirit of God in us. And so we are to worship as a temple. And so now in the New Testament, when there's discipline on somebody and the person does not repent, continues not to repent, eventually the person is cast from the temple. The person is put out of the presence of God's people. You see, to be part of a church is to be in the garden and to have a taste. Now, it's not finished yet. It's not finished till Jesus comes back. So He returns. Then we'll know perfect perfect redemption, the perfect garden. But now the church is the place of God's presence. And it is a holy privilege to be together. To gather together. To be worshipers in His presence. And the New Testament would teach it's a terrible thing to be outside of the church. It's a terrible thing to be outside of a local church. Isn't it sad, given this truth, right in Genesis 3 and throughout the Bible, that there are Christians who think it's a better state to not be part of a local church? Now, I'm not trying to say this to get someone to come into this church. There are lots of good local churches out there. But if we're God's people, we are to be in the garden. We're to walk together and enjoy His presence in our midst. Um, there's, we are to come on Sundays and, and feel His presence as we remember the Gospel. We are to experience His blessing as we gather together. I am so looking forward to next Sunday, not only for our worship time, but for our luncheon. I think like... Like you, I think. I have wonderful memories. There's our, there are a few things better in life than to sit together on a Sunday afternoon with a plate of food in my lap, a sunny fall day with God's people all around, just having fun, just enjoying one another, just remembering God's grace, laughing together. See, we get to dwell in the garden. So let us not despise that. Let us realize what privilege it is. And if you are outside 
the garden. If you are right now outside in exile, you recognize, you know what, I'm not in a church, and, and I'm not even sure if this is true. I just, we just want you to know, I want you to know, God's call. He beckons you, come, come back. Yes, I cast Adam and Eve, but now I've made provision in Christ to come back in. There's only two places to be, and I want you here. So come in. Come in. Turn from your sin and yourself and recognize a Savior has bled and died for you. So now you can be with me. Come in. Come and fellowship with me. Come and be with my people. That's His invitation. That's in His invitation to us this morning. If the band could come up as we close. We are to come into the garden. We are to enjoy the promise to God's people. David says in Psalm 23, Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's our enjoyment. That's our blessing. That's the promise we have. That's the reality we experience. And that promise... God wants to sustain us because the work's not done yet. It's not all finished. Right now, we dwell in a land where we still feel the pain. We still feel the pain. And and there are those in our midst who are feeling it more acutely than others. I don't want to... We don't want to be trite. You know, we don't want to be like, let's just put on a smile and pretend that isn't true. It's true. But there's something greater. There's the promise of God amidst the pain. And isn't God good... The way He works right away, the beginning in Genesis, gives us that promise. So may we this morning be refreshed and reminded of that. May we be strengthened in that. And may we be able to remind our brothers and sisters of that key. So that they might come out of Doubting Castle, find joy, and enjoy what is theirs, even amidst the pain that we have been welcomed back into the garden. Let's pray. Lord, there's no one like You. Even as You brought judgment and cursing to the snake, You promised deliverance and redemption. We thank You for Your mercy. And that that mercy is the same for us right here today. Though we may be amidst pain, and though we may be sinners, and we are, You hold out a promise and a key. And You say, believe and enter in. We thank You for it, Lord. And may we live in this promise and in the joy of being welcomed back into this garden, this Holy of Holies, through the blood of the Son. Refresh Your people in this truth, we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and worship. Mystery of the cross I cannot count.